Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Russell Brand as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with an award-winning comedian, a Hollywood actor, a best-selling author, a reformed drug addict, and a political activist. But I'm only talking to one man, because tonight, I'll be in conversation with Russell Brand. Thank you. How are you? I feel quite good, thanks. Yeah, I said in my introduction to you, tonight I'll be in conversation with an award-winning comedian, a best-selling author, a Hollywood movie star, a recovering addict and a political activist, but I'm only talking to one person. You do embody all of those titles. This is why I'm anxious all the time. It's a lack of clarity and (laughs) clear direction. You're right. I have been like, don't you feel sometimes that you've lived multiple lives? Like, you know, before you was a stand up, didn't you have to do like sales of medical gear yeah. and stuff like that? And sometimes don't you sort of remember for a moment as some previous incarnation? I sometimes do. I sometimes remember, oh, right, sort of 15 years ago, crack houses in Bethnal Green, then sort of being in Essex when I was like a little kid. It just seems peculiar that the one continuum is myself sort of watching all these things unfold. In my mind, when I look at it, there's been a constant, which is is like you've always been performing. Whether whether you're performing to a big stage, whether you're performing to an audience, there seems to have been a thing, even through your childhood, that this desire to be noticed, the desire to be seen. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I was thinking because there's part of your show, of course, where you have to select a, a photograph that is evocative. And one of the ones that I was considering was a photograph of myself when I was in a school play. We did, like, bug Malone yeah. at my school and I remember feeling when we did that I was Fat Sam I was a chubbier lad then that was before like uh, bulimia had kicked in and the, <laughs> the beginning of a chain of addictive behaviours that would lead to thinness and mental illness so it's sort of a, a mixed bag like I mean we're not advocating that as a weight loss plan <laughs> You shouldn't set up slimmers clubs around the, <laughs> around the country that are based on mental illness on, yeah. on, on, on any condition. But like, uh, I remember feeling when I was doing that school play, ah, oh, this is this is a way out. And I didn't just mean sort of economically or geographically. I meant primarily psychologically. If I can do this thing, it's going to be all right that I'm mental. Before that play, as a kid, what did you do with this energy that you had inside of you? Solitude, like a lot of extraordinary solitude and weird showing off. Like sort of, I'd like a lot of times 
of staring at little action figures, playing with like animals, watching TV too close. I didn't have brothers and sisters, so I felt very, very much in my head. I've like a, one of the things I sort of noticed about other kids was like they seemed to define themselves by things that were external to them. Now, like, I've had like obviously lots of trouble with addiction, and that is about relating to things that are external. But like I've always had a strong connection to my inner life. I've always thought that who I am when I'm on my own is who I most am. Like not who I am in relationship to other people. Not her. Like, and I think you know, like being a stand-up comic. Yeah, there's part of that that's pitching and reaching out. But it's a very unusual way to relate yeah. to people. It's very, very solitary. And I think that energy has gone into addictive behaviours, self-harming behaviours. Like, like throughout my life, the management of that energy has been taxing. At that age, of 15, you're in Bugsy Malone. By 16, you've said, "I want to go to a talent concert, performance art school." You've kind of made uh, an emotional decision that that's what you want to do. Now, I know loads of times you said I wanted to be famous, I wanted to, to pursue that avenue. But in reality, coming from a working class background where there's not a lot of money and there's not a lot of support, that's a braver decision than it appears. In my eyes, it is anyway. Well, that's good that you think that. Thank you. But like, I, I think that I would describe my background as very, very ordinary. And I, because of the kind of life that I've had subsequently, and because I'm quite fortunate, I, I now think that to have the addiction issues that I do, which means I have to spend a lot of time around other people with addiction issues and alcohol. I recognise that I had a mum that was present and really, really yeah. loved me. Dad that really loves me and still in my life and I have a good relationship with. And like, I think the older I get, the better my childhood gets. The older Ooh. I get, the more I think, oh, you were pretty lucky. You know, there was a lot of ways that could have been a lot harder. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't want to do my parents the disservice, actually, of saying oh, I had this really incredibly difficult childhood or to belittle the struggles other people have, because I feel like I had... A a lot of opportunities. Not that I'm not trying to, I'd love to cash in on people going, God, I had it tough. I'm always trying to make it look like I've had it tough. But, and now you're saying it, I don't have to do it. So that's brilliant news. <laughs> um, what it felt like to me is I did have everything that I needed and all of the, like the sort of things where I've felt very inadequate and insecure and weak and vulnerable and not good enough. Those things for me now feel like fuel because whilst I'll be contextualized on the outside, I always think this when I'm doing stand up, people come and see you because they're famous and they know you from the telly or whatever, but that's just the lens they're looking at you through. And I think, well, I know actual me. I know that none of that is real. I know where I came from. I know what I've been through. And I want to connect to people on the level of their vulnerability and the, on the level of their inadequacy. Because I don't think those things are real in me and I don't think they're real in them. I think that I believe that people have great beauty in them. And like being able to acknowledge my own flaws and frailties and failings enables me to connect to people in a way that I think is simply compassionate, actually. The public persona about you is probably less close to the real you than people people perceive, I think, in my humble opinion. No, I think you're right. You'd be better qualified to say than I, I would because, yeah, I don't understand it or know what other people yeah, are saying. Yeah, because when you talk about your fans and stuff and people who come to see you, and I've been to some of your gigs, there's a kind of disciple element to it. You know, I've you fostered are, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you'll have to always call the Messiah complex. So <laughs> I think maybe some of it is your fault. But no, but there is an element where you're communicating as a stand-up and you're making people laugh but you put yourself out there to connect with also the vulnerable. Yes. Look, I'll level with you, mate. I've been a right selfish person so many times in my life. I've been a drug addict, that makes you selfish. Alcoholic, that makes you selfish. I went mental around sex, like suddenly being allowed to have sex with people. I had no way of controlling that. I just thought it was, it was ridiculous. It was like no, I fell I'm in a well. No, hang on, hang on, right. Right, this, let's be honest. 
you know, addiction's a very, very difficult disease of, on a lot of levels, and yes. I'm sure we'll come on to it, but sex addiction. You don't buy into that. I know what you're saying, mate, because it does seem a bit tr tricky when then people go after a special hospital. Oh, well, tell them what you're here for. I can't stop fucking everyone. Get out! <laughs> <laughs> you pervert! <laughs> go on! You need that bed for people with proper illnesses. <laughs> yeah. Let's have a look at them. You don't you touch them. Before I go on a little bit, I can heal them. Yeah. <laughs> but it is one of the things, of all, of all the, the, the addictions people go, like for you, obviously you've had the Lothario reputation. And, and you know, you're, you're, you're a very handsome man and women, are, women, are, women are drawn to you. Everybody would assume that in terms of fame, being single, having all the trappings of fame includes the ability to have sex with lots of people that you want to have sex with. At mm. what point does somebody say, actually, this is getting beyond pleasure? I think anything you're doing that's starting to have a detrimental effect on you or others and you can't stop it, I think has you can consider that to be in the neighbourhood of addiction. With behavioural things, sex and food and gambling, it's less easily identifiable than substance misuse. Substance misuse, if someone's drunk all the time or when they do get drunk, they get into a lot of trouble or if someone's taking illegal substances it's much clearer to identify but what I feel like with me is I was following a sort of a path a preordained cultural path of if you're famous you can have sex with loads of different people have a nice time and then so you think well this is really good this is really good and it takes a while before you start thinking I'm a bit bloody lonely actually this isn't working because something that's short-term fulfilling as sex and is culturally endorsed like sex and if you have a bit of an addictive nature anyway it's very difficult to sort of unpick it until you start to think I'm living a kind of in a repetitive cycle of a behaviour that's making me feel a bit lonely. Yeah. And like, what, you know, you're not making proper connections with people, not to mention it's detrimental for the people that you're having sex with, if you, like, in, in terms of, you know, unless people are very clear that this is like, this is just recreational. I think it's not beneficial to you, or, you know, in my case, me, uh, or to the people that I'm, you know, was having sex with, really. Although I would say there was a very, very good orgasm ratio. That I guarantee. <laughs> On my side, I always had one. <laughs> no, I mean, for everyone involved, that was, like, my minimum requirement. But what I'm saying is, is that... But, like... For <laughs> even that statement, for everyone involved. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's for everyone who happened to be there. <laughs> you're right, you're right. It was a bit... Um, what was it? It was very effervescent uh, and ebullient and all-encompassing. I really, really went for it. But, like, um... <laughs> Actually, it was bloody good, John. <laughs> I don't think I can win this argument. <laughs> no, like, what, what I mean is, is that uh, what I have come to realise is that you can't sustain yourself through any external behaviour. You know, look, of course we are human beings and we need to eat food. We are human beings and we need to procreate and have a sexual dimension to our lives. But I am not very good at monitoring or controlling those kind of behaviours once I'm into them. I've had issues around food, I've had issues around sex, I've had issues around drugs, and it's because I sort of get very excited about the carnal world the world of flesh and things and for me it's it's not the answer in some respects that predilection that you had to be available for sex became part of your public persona you, you were like the George Best of comedy you know, I was really having a good time yeah but that's what it, it became part of what people associated you with which again is is that facade yes. that appears to me some people haven't got past maybe you're right but because it, it doesn't entirely feel like a facade it feels like the harvesting of my human experience so if my human experience is I was a chubby little boy at school and I didn't feel good enough and then I got really skinny and I got famous and I got good at showing off and then I was able to have sex with lots and lots of different people, 
I'm just telling people what happened. Yeah. You know, it's only really information. I'm just conveying information. And the sort of humour is coming, in fact, from the various minutiae and the observations that you can't help but make. The moments of peculiar loneliness that occur. For me, a lot of comedy is coming from the sort of... The primary narrative is always the one that is in my head. So there would be moments where there would be five or six women over me like vultures. I would watch them and it would, and it would seem strange to me that this was what I was thinking in that moment. Like I felt myself like a fairground ride that they were on and disembodied. And it was when I was thinking stuff like that, I thought this way of life probably not got a lot more juice in it. In your period then when you sort of broke through on television, when you started presenting at MTV and so on, the addictions obviously kicked in. There's been loads of problems that are well documented about you getting kicked, you know, sat by MTV for dressing up as Osama Bin Laden, the day after 9-11, all of those things, they're all well-trodden paths. But somewhere within that, that's when the stand-up started, isn't it? Mm, in yes. that same period. And that's what I found quite interesting. You started doing stand-up, probably close to your lowest point. You're right about that, actually. I, I mean, obviously, this is something that I couldn't have observed at the time, but the only way I can rationalise it is I must have thought, well, this I can do, and no one can really sack me from it. Yeah, but the reason that that struck me is because I started doing stand up when I was at my lowest, when uh. I'd split up with my wife. And people think, you know, me and Melanie had split up, and that's what made me do it. And every time I spoke to someone else who's a stand up, it's amazing how many have entered it as a way of cleansing something else that was going wrong. Confession. Yeah. Like when you're brought low and you've lost everything that you need to have some different kind of conversation you'd have to have some different kind of communion i wonder often if many of the problems we are experiencing are not because of the role of religion in our lives today but because of the loss of religion in our lives today that there is no framework for that kind of experience that there is no framework to say this is how i am this is how i feel so that's yeah that's very interesting to me because when a relationship ends i think it's like you're on a train track and life's going this way and then the relationship ends with someone like someone wrenches up that train track and now you're like, oh my god I'm just here I don't know where my future's going anymore and I can see how that impulse would align with right I better bloody tell the truth to a room full of strangers I better get something out of this madness yeah yeah you became somebody for, for loads of reasons a spokesperson on a number of levels the conversation about drugs was always they're bad and if you do them you must be ugly and there's something wrong with you and you don't fit in so they're bad and not being on them is good and when you're not on them that's fine don't mention that bit ever again and what you've been able to do is to say when you're on them they were great but they were wrong they were filling the wrong thing but they were doing something yes. does that make sense because I, I always think sometimes with, with the whole debate around drugs, people forget that there's a pleasure to be had during the time that people are taking drugs until all of a sudden they realise this, this pleasure is a false reality. Yes, I think this is true. I think that it was it's true and demonstrable and easy to understand with drugs that it provides you with a kind of a nutrition that you're not getting elsewhere in your life and ultimately becomes very painful and detrimental. It's the same with fame or money or anything or sex. You know, like I think that it's the same interface. The, the expectation that something can somehow fulfil you, or redeem you, mm. or rescue you, or heal you, unless it has um, some truth to it. By which I mean, God, it's always really dreadful to have to say it out loud. Helping other people or a sense of purpose, like those are the only things that I have personally found can give me any kind of sustenance. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. 
the home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You did a documentary. Uh, about drug addiction and within that documentary there was uh, uh, some footage of you in the old days smoking heroin which uh, was obviously disturbing but what what struck me about it is you you were looking in the camera you're obviously high you're about 21 I guess is you were a beautiful young man I mean as a father I kind of wanted to climb in the television and pick you up but because you look lost like you may be a drug addict but you've also got a fantastic skin regime you know what I mean <laughs> you know, on so many levels it looked like an advert for what drug addiction could make you look like often when people think of, of a drug addict and a heroin addict and so on they think of somebody who looked like an addict they think of somebody who looks beaten in that documentary the person that I saw that you used to be didn't look beaten they looked like they were just in something and, and in their eyes you could tell they were lost. But to the rest of the world, they probably looked like, like they were winning. Well, that's really very compassionate of you, I think, that you perceived that in that way because obviously I remember that time and I remember that little bit of footage and I remember that I did not feel like I was a beautiful person. Mm. I felt very, very damaged and very, very frightened and very alone. It's actually very lovely to hear you say that and very sort of sweet. And I think that probably what I was in need of was a kind of nurture and connection with more stable and likely older men that would be, you know, that could earth me. Yeah, yeah, that come out in the documentary and you're very open about about the pain associated with it, but also open about the fact that you didn't recognise it all until until John Knowles, who was your manager at the time, said, look, you know, you've got to go in. If I think the comment that was said to you by Chip, who became your counsellor, was, if you don't go in now, six months, you'll be dead or in jail or in a mental asylum. Chip provided, like, the insight and sweetness and compassion, and John Knowles provided the strength. These were qualities that I just did not have. And that's, again, I suppose, why I feel so compassionate, not only to people with addiction issues, but anybody who is, has issues around mental health because they the people that are difficult to be around you know and it's not easy to love people that have addiction issues because you think why don't you just fucking listen and do what I'm telling you it's obvious you know but in the midst of it what you actually sort of or what I required was someone just to tell me what to do that's what I needed I didn't feel like I 
had that kind of clarity. The, the way of getting over addiction for me has been taught a different way of connecting that has a lot to do with spirituality. I have to, as best I can, be useful to other people and have a connection to something higher and then learning very simple things. Keep your life one day at a time, surrender that you have got no power and no control over this, believe that you can live differently, make a decision to be teachable. And still in my life now, I'm continually going, this thing's happening to me, I don't know what to do, what should I do? And people tell me. And then down the line, there's younger people that I talk to and I am the person that's given that advice. The passion that you've just displayed there and the, the way you talk about it is something that has, has been evident, particularly in recent years when you're talking about politics and you're getting engaged with so, on so many organisations on so many levels. But for you as a public persona, when you've taken that beyond that, you did the, you know, the truers that you did where you were doing the internet broadcast and your opinions, mm. and then you were going on to things like Question Time, and all of a sudden you've become a political spokesman on so many things. Was there a point where you went, I cannot represent everyone? Yeah, it got out of hand. Yo, you were on Paxman, you're telling people not to vote, and then people go like, Labour lost the election because of you. That's and too then, much pressure. And then, you know... I was only mucking around. It, it became... <laughs> but don't you think it became something that was beyond... You, not only your ability as an as a individual to do it, but beyond your role? Yeah, almost. in a way, I suppose it was. Because it went from, like, per Russell Brand from scandals on the radio to... If you want to be prime minister, you better come around my fucking flat for a chat. That's like a, <laughs> that's a lot. Of, that's like a lot of pressure to be under in a six-month time frame, John. You know, like and so like what happened was what I started from was is like looking at newspapers and reading them and like my mate filming it and going like, look at this story. It's saying this, but you know that they're just trying to make you think this about immigrants or they're just trying to make you think this about that in order to distract you from this. Right? Started off from just telling the truth in a funny way about stuff I was reading. And then, like, people started to like it, and because I'm an egomaniac, I thought, let's just push this thing and see where it, like, see where it leads. So then, like, it was like, we were having a go at Fox News in America, and they, like, idiots, responded. Never respond if some... Never give in to it. Because, like, like, I said stuff to them about this, that and the other, like, I don't know, Fox News, corporate swines, propaganda, evil Nazis, I can't remember the details, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, like, and, like, they responded, and they were going, Russell Brand! And I was like, oh, my God, it's like I'm on the telly doing this thing now. I'm in a war with them. This is brilliant. I'll say some more stuff and it sort of started to escalate because really like comedy is my faith you know I love comedy so I'll just keep going and keep doing stuff and then I started to realize more and more anything that you didn't I didn't believe it was legitimate or authentic was up for targeting so I'd quite I'd say look people are saying this but they don't really mean it they don't really believe it and like if you're good if your target is politics it is full of inauthenticity it is full of bogus objectives there it is dubious look at what's happened in the last year like look at what's going on it's gone mad it's gone all mad it's ripe for comedy but where I went wrong was people went, well, why don't you do something then? And I went, fucking hell, all right, I will. Right, now that's when you're in trouble because... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but there's a responsibility in it. But when people say, why don't you do something? I saw you on the Jeremy Paxman, he's going, well, you're telling people not to vote. Why don't you do something? And then everyone's going, why don't you? And there's a point where you go, your job almost as a comic is to put, it's like the court jester, to yeah. point out the absurd, yeah. not necessarily to provide an answer. And it seemed that you were, you were either willingly or being pushed into the bit where you go, well, you've got to have an answer or shut up. That was my own ego pushing me there. No one pushes me really, but my own ego, very, very uh, 
volatile, pushy little guy he is. So, like, uh, like people are going, you better find an answer. And then so you, my ego goes, maybe you are Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, ego. You're probably right. So, uh, so like, uh, I just weighed in. But, like, you know, I'm always better. If I'm sort of thinking, just serve people, just serve people, I'm good. If I start thinking, I could have so much power, it makes me go mad. It makes me go mad, the prospect of it. So, and there were some people going, do you know, like, my mate Matt, the arsehole, goes to me, people are taking you so seriously that if you tell people to vote Labour, I think they will. And I went, do you know what? They probably will. I'll do it tomorrow in the morning. <laughs> like, and then we, I phoned up another man goes, do you reckon you can get Ed, Ed Miliband come around my house? And like, it was Adam Curtis, he makes these amazing documentaries, right? And he goes, yeah, I know him, I don't know, I'll get it So before we know it, it's all proper MP-type people and a parakeet were on the phone. Hi, Russell, what would it be like? They sent the secret services around my house to check under my bed for bombs. They didn't find bombs, but what they did find was far worse. <laughs> <laughs> so people were all coming around the house, there's all sort of armoured vehicles coming around the flat. I thought, this was ridiculous, that this, is, this can't actually happen. And, then, like, and I got nervous and I wanted to sabotage it. Like, Ed Miliband turned up and they were going, well, um, so are you going to say that you're going to vote for Labour? I goes, I can't vote because... Uh, I ain't registered. I've never voted. I don't know where the forms are or any of that. And then they went off to have a meeting on my stairs. Oh, this can't be good. He can't even vote. What are we going to do? This is chaos. And I was watching them all clustered having a meeting in my, in my corridor. And I thought, listen, the world's gone mad. This shouldn't be happening. How is this happening? It's all falling apart. And then, so I goes, listen, I'm only going to do this interview if they'll do it perched on the end of my bed. And then, like, all of Ed Miliband's folks goes, we ain't doing it perched on the end of his bed. That's weird. And then my mates were, I goes, well, I ain't doing it then. Fuck it, I ain't bothered. And then my mates who are making the thing with go, no, come on, it's Ed Miliband, he's in the house, you'll have to do it. And they, they all look pale. And this happens to people that work with me a lot. I see their faces go pale. <laughs> and I have to work out like it's a litmus paper how bad the problem is <laughs> from their level of paleness. All right, I'll do it then. Then I've done the interview and Ed Miliband, you can tell he's a nice actual person. Don't you see that? Whenever the politicians bail out, like the next day when they resign, like Nick Clegg or whatever, they go, I'm not doing it anymore. And they go, oh, I've resigned now. And he's like, oh, you all right, you. I could vote for you, but before they're like, well, you know, it is a new Britain. Like, they, like, they, like, they unplug from the bullshit gas that they sort of have piped into them. And I think that's why I think it's systematically problematic. Not like any individual. It's the system itself. You can put anybody in there, including and especially me. If I'm in that system and start getting off on it, then I'm just another arsehole. <laughs> so power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you had a very public marriage... You know, you were famous, Katy Perry was famous, couldn't have been more famous, and yet it remained the duration of it. Private, you divorced, that was private. There was something there behind the hedges that no one saw, and I thought that must have been so difficult because people must have been clamouring over both of you for pictures or stories or, or any, any tattoo. The preservation of the privacy became the dominant idea, thinking about it now. You know, that became what it was. It's like, well, we will try to preserve some normalcy while not perhaps fully realising what normalcy was. Yeah. And then, but then what marriage is, what relationship is. I mean, all of us, aren't we, to some degree, trying to emulate some version of what life ought be based on what we experience from our parents? But, but, or... but for somebody like you who, who'd sought fame and recognition, uh, for Katie, who'd, who'd been down a, a similar path and you were both... I mean, not a little bit known, massively famous. I think everybody kind of expected that your marriage would be a, 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 a public thing. And it's really struck me as the difference between the public Russell brand and the personal. 
once the announcements was made we're married, there's been the odd photograph when you were together, but that was it. You didn't mm. share it past that. Yes, I th well, thinking about it now, I must have been conscious on some level that it would be very, very challenging if yeah. there were external influences. And Katie was obviously very, very occupied and very busy. I was occupied and busy, not to the same degree I, I recognise. But like it meant, I think, that if the sanctimony of marriage, which is a very private thing really, isn't it? I mean, there is the declaration that we are together in front of people, there is a ceremony, people are invited, that is the point of a wedding ceremony. In the end, there is a kind of intimacy where you acknowledge, right, it's just the two of us in this thing. And I suppose perhaps we intuitively or explicitly, I don't know, understood that that is, that we'd better protect this thing. Now, like, obviously the marriage didn't last for a very long time, and I, but, and, uh, and I think that is to do with the sort of undulating nature of fame and that living in those conditions and what was happening. But I have come, I have come away from that experience feeling, I still feel very warm towards her. I feel mm. like when I hear about her or see her, I think, oh, there's that person. There's that person in the world, you know? But like, uh, I sort of recognise it as a part of my life that was for a clearly delineated piece of time. Yeah. Your journey to now becoming a father has been through so many highs and so many lows that fatherhood probably is seen from a completely different perspective than say it would have been for me. I was 26 when mm. I got married, 27, I think probably, 26, 27 when we had Joe. So I was a young dad and learning about life. I mean, you've lived, I don't know how many lives, if you'd added it all together. So by the time you've become a father, is the a, a thing with you where you look at your daughter Mabel and you go, right, this is the world I want you to be in? Or do you think, now that I've got a daughter, I've actually got to now step up a level and change everyone's world to make her world better? There is something of both, to tell you the truth. Like, on one level, I feel like every time I'm impacted by, like, a news story about far-flung desperation or some desperate impoverishment, I feel like, oh, my God, now that I feel this candid, plain, all-encompassing love for this child, this surging, ridiculous, giddying, nauseous love. Like, I feel like what, um, like everybody deserves this love. Everybody. Like the thing that's been the most spectacular thing in my life is the most ordinary thing in my life. A baby came out, like everyone, like all of us did. Like and all of us that have got children, the same experience that we all had. Nothing spectacular about it at all. Completely ordinary miracle. And now I'm responsible for this human being. And it, so in one way it makes me feel very insular and like bloody hell, I'm just going to look after this kid. And then in another way, it makes me think, well, you can't do that. You have to find what it, this resource of love that you have in you is limitless and everybody is worthy of love. So it's made me feel like, yeah, it's made me feel like <clears throat> But you can't, you can't as easily be available to everyone in the way that you have been in the past. You can't as easily fight all the causes that you fought because you need to be a dad, you need to go home. Yes, that's true, John. Um, but what I'm planning to do, and this is, I mean, it's, a, it's a bold technique, I'm uh, surrendering self-will. I'm going to just do what happens. I'm just going to do what I'm guided to do. And at the moment, the reality is I've got this girlfriend and I've got this baby, so that's what I'm going to be doing. And if I receive some overture or some signal that I'm supposed to do something else, then I will do that. You know, and then sort of, so I think now you is... You can't say that. <laughs> what if the signal said, said <laughs> Russell, go to the Himalayas and meditate for five years? You can't do that. What? Stop crying! There's been a signal from the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, because you you now have a lifelong bond. You have you have something. You have now an element of permanence you've probably never had in your life. In yeah. fact, you've never had in your life. That's true. This and, is true. And so, so the whim of Hollywood's calling again, whether it's work or the whim of, <laughs> you know, you now need. Please. <laughs> you know, that 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 has to be built around something, something else and someone else. Well, this is entirely true, but this doesn't feel to me at odds with what I am feeling, John. When she was born, I felt something really quite profound. Oh, I mean, yeah. the, the advantage, I suppose, of being, you know, an adult uncluttered by my adolescent drives and imperatives was I felt extremely present in that birth. Excuse me, burping in the middle of a very touching story. Completely sort of overwhelmed by it. And, like, the thing I've heard a, a lot of men say is, uh, I didn't know I had such love in me. But I did know I had such love in me. I just didn't know what to do with it. And yeah. when I saw her, I felt something kind of switch on and this sense of very determined and clear purpose. So that's, like, you know, I don't envisage any situation where I'd go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm off now to become a snooker player. Like, but, like, I, but what... <laughs> snooker where, now for me, I must... Where did snooker player come from? <laughs> so I thought it should be something that, if you were, it would seem really important, but it's actually irrelevant. <laughs> 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 um, like, so, but like, so I don't, like, I don't envisage any life outside of what yeah, the, the the unit you've got. Yeah. But like, uh, I do know that there is something that is very important uh, that we have to do. I think this time is telling us yeah. that transition and change must happen, and that it's something that we're all going to have to participate in. But when I say and said at the beginning, I give up my will around it. I'm not going to suddenly go. My job is to do is to dismantle the government from my bedroom. <laughs> You know, yeah. like it, like I'm gonna just see what happens. But, but there's been a whole change in the last last couple of years for you. You've moved out to the country. Mm. You settled home with Laura. You've got the baby, Mabel. You've you've got you've got a life that that again is different, so different than the previous previous lives you've lived. The bond between my partner and I is based on something that is very very earthed. And very, we are friends. We are good friends. Mm. Like when I'm talking to her, I'm very like plainly chatting. There is not a the sense of it being referenced by an external myth. Now I sort of recognise. Ah, oh, thank God for something normal. Thank God for something not even normal, real, real, not something else, not some concealed thing, not something that's going to break apart and be nothing. Mm -hmm. A real human being with all of the flaws and the beauty that that entails. And it's a very, very, it's a fucking relief. <laughs> uh, when we get people on the show, we always ask them to bring a picture. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a, a picture of importance to them. This is the one that you've chosen. Can, oh, can there you... I am. Can you talk us through well, that? Well, firstly, it's got an arse. That's a touch, isn't it? Like, that's me with my mum on a beach somewhere in England. I'm guessing it's either Frinton or Clacton. It'll be one of those two. Maybe people who know those things well will be able to guess. I guess I'm, like, 18 months old there. I'm little. Look, I've got blonde hair. My mum looks very happy. I like that idea that she's sort of happy and peaceful. And uh, also... Because I've got a baby now and she's like 16 weeks old, she's sort of tiny and perfect and uncluttered by any erroneous information. I'm very aware of like, like every time I pick her up, don't let any traumatic things happen to her. Knowing that at some point I'm inevitably going to be the source of some chaos or some disruption in her life. 
what I like about that, I suppose, is the simplicity, the uncomplicatedness of that image of me with my mother and the possibility, I suppose, for purity going forward and simplicity. What's lovely about that <clears throat> is when you come back to that picture with you and your mum, you know, because throughout, as you said, the audience here, we don't know everyone's story, but, you know, most people will have a picture of some sort like that with the mum. That, that moment in your childhood where someone could wrap their whole arms around you and take care of you. Yeah. It's, a, it's a special thing to have in it, but also a special thing to be able to pass on. Oh, bloody hell, John, that was good. <laughs> good too, isn't you? Also very laid back about it. <laughs> we can't all be fucking getting up Ladies and gentlemen, I think we'll all agree. That was a wonderful conversation, Russell. Thanks a million. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.